You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. with unseen. 
which true empathy on the one hand is demanded and yet can almost almost never happen. With the survivors of atrocity speak their story but nobody wants to hear it and nobody wants to listen. And this is the terrain that we're on when we are talking about trauma. Um, a little quick bit of background. I direct this little project at Columbia Journalism School called The Dark Seconds of Journalism and Trauma. On our website, um, www.darkcenter.org, there are a lot of tip sheets and other resources on the specifics of things like interviewing victims of trauma, on self-care, on some of the things I'll talk about today. We'll have a long conversation. I'm only going to talk for maybe 20 minutes, then you can go wherever you want to go with this. But you can find resources there that, although they're designed for journalists, are perhaps relevant to you. And also on that website, actually, I hadn't thought of this, but now it's something that may be specifically useful, um, a database of global research on trauma and media, um, which our, the researchers associated with our center have assembled. Uh, it's uh, free to search. Anyway, so why are we here? You know, as researchers, you need to understand are looking at, and whether it is the events of the last generation here in the Balkans, or sexual assault, or climate change, we need to understand the experience of survivors of trauma, whether we're going to do any kind of primary research, or even the secondary research in more history accounts, and so on. We want to develop effective What do I need to know about how traumas tend to get narrated in order to interpret primary documents better? And so on. There are some special ethical challenges that come about <coughs> in dealing with highly vulnerable people. Whether we're talking about hidden histories, um, you also want to manage your own emotions in these difficult issues. This is something that sometimes Where I'm coming from, 
some of the other researchers in the field. And from the very grounded and in some ways anti-theoretical world of journalism, um, <laughs> we are just moles who go about our business without thinking too much about theoretical frameworks <laughs> most of the time. Um, but my work at the DART Center in particular involves uh, engagement with evidence-based trauma science. And so for, for me, as I say up there, trauma is not a metaphor. Uh, for me, it is a, a very, very specifically <coughs> about the idea of psychological injury. <coughs> and I'll talk more about that. That begins with the individual, but extends out to families and communities and nations and generations, which is at once biologically rooted and yet socially and politically a profound consequence of Trauma is vicarious as well as direct. This is very important. This is uh, the idea that secondary, secondary smoke can make you sick and secondary exposure to trauma can have a profound impact. There's very interesting science on that. Uh, trauma is a, while it's a scientific concept, it is also a political one. And as soon as we're talking about trauma, we are talking about abuses of power. We're talking about censorship. We're talking about the silence and the looking. We're talking about the erosion of one's responsibility in proximity, right? Um, and trauma is something, the concept of trauma rooted in psychology has profound implications for the practice of research, for the telling of stories, and for political dialogue. I mean, by the way, I'm not going to do too many slides, but I just wanted to lay a few things out here. The particular focus for this workshop on how trauma relates to the abuse of power. Um, this is uh, Ron's abuse, great and still distressing and terrifying photograph of, of my human fist on one of those. Um, there is all psychological trauma is uh, accelerated by human cruelty. And the infliction of human cruelty is so basic. Violence as a tool of suppression is so basic. So when we talk about trauma, we'll be thinking as well about how power relates to it. Uh, the not only the assertion of violence, but then the subsequent cover-up of censorship, the subsequent uh, denial of the voices of victims subsequent fragmentation of the story. So, I'm going to talk about trauma and resilience. I'll try to define those terms as I understand them in ways that I think may be useful to you uh, as researchers. Some implications for craft, some implications for self-care, um, some implications for ethics. I think this is really very important and then lots of time um, so, what is trauma? We've been throwing around this word in a very general way and in a more theoretical way in this first panel. I'm coming at it from, as I say, uh, an evidence 
from a psychology perspective. Um, and it's the best way to understand trauma, as I am, in America, from the simple as a wound, as an injury that is as real and enduring as a physical injury. It comes from biopsychosocial responses, beginning with the biological world, through violence or horror, into a threat. It's deep in our, the, the traumatic, post-traumatic responses are deeply encoded in us for survival has profound consequences. And as I said, clinically, vicarious as well as direct. I want to talk about trauma as a biopsychosocial phenomenon all at the same time. And we'll begin, first of all, oh, before I get to that. So yes, trauma is impacted biological, psychological, social. I'll come back to that. But I also very much want to talk about resilience. We don't spend enough time talking about resilience. And in the startling context and the political context of this institute, I think it's important to know that human beings are in fact quite resilient in the face of trauma. So what is resilience? Resilience is the capacity of an object to resume its shape after compression stress. There are no physicists in the room who or engineers who will correct me, thank God, on that one. But you know, the ability to adapt, the ability to recover from overwhelming stress. Okay. Resilience is a parallel idea to trauma. They're not opposite, but we need to talk about both in human beings at the same time. So, biological side. Biological responses to trauma. Okay. Um, has anyone here ever been in a, let me think about this, a kind of low-grade low car accident, a screech, crunch kind of car accident where it made it, okay. <laughs> what do you remember about your body or brain in that moment? What do you, what, what's your recollection of the moment of that not-too-bad car accident? Anyone? Yeah? Recalibrate. That's normal. That happens mostly. 
is a withdrawal from society, a withdrawal from engagement with loved ones, and sometimes a withdrawal even from speech. These are events that are too big to be spoken of. And the, the real classic biological post-traumatic syndrome, if you will, which you will see a lot um, in interviews and you'll see a lot in eyewitness accounts of atrocities, is actually a push out of bulk. Uh, what Hugh McDermott calls the dialectic of trauma, which is the whipsaw between remembering and forgetting, between intrusive memory and arousing and numbing. People get in cycles of those things. And that's, this is all biological. It is rooted in how the brain processes overwhelming trauma, beginning with individuals, right? Psychological, all this in turn, you know, our psychological, our cognitive apprehension of the world can be affected in profound ways by this internal whipsaw between speech and silence, remembering and forgetting. Um, clinicians call it negative cognitions that people's worldview may darken. They may, people may become much more fragmented in their ability to engage socially. Or and a particular consequence for field researchers, you may encounter sources, interview subjects, who rush at you with accounts and then withdraw, who want to participate in your research and then become very anxious about it. The dialectic of approach and avoidance is crucial. Um, and then social or political. You can also call this political, social dimensional trauma. And this is, I think, where, in some ways, in research, the main you are engaged in begins. Trauma implies a disruption of the norms of social trust disruption of the social contract. For me to go down the stairs and into that lovely monastery down the road to go to sleep tonight implies a kind of profound sense of safety. An awful lot has to go right just between crossing the road and, and getting there. No cars, you know, the cars all have to pay attention to the stop signs. Nobody ha has to be coming at us with knives and guns an awful lot has to go right. The trauma survivor is someone for whom uh, reality has changed and they're enduring that. The illusion of the social contract has been ripped up. Uh, and very often there's a profound sense of unsafety, a profound sense of betrayal, and isolation that people carry with them. Hugh McCurman would say uh, that people are torn again in the dialectic of trauma between the desire to shout their story to the stars and the absolute conviction that no one wants to listen or can listen or can understand. Right? Um, this also brings <coughs> often a lot of so stigma, what we saw in, in Job, um, and means that you're dealing a lot on the, on the terrain Um, and just, just quickly to run through this. So all of this can lead to symptom changes. I said that intrusive memory, all this sort of stuff, 
one theoretical model is post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not a psychologist. There are, I think, no psychologists in this room. But it's useful to understand how psychology has conceptualized this. So the theoretical model for enduring psychological injury is an event that evokes fear, helplessness, or horror that's accompanied for a duration as unwanted, intrusive images or memories that brings with it significant avoidance or numbing, significant disruption of physiological arousal that evokes significant cognition, a change in worldview that brings some significant impairment. And this is important because just because we look at a dead body doesn't mean we're going to get PTSD, right? Um, there's, I think, sometimes now an assumption that this is an inevitable outcome, and it's actually really not. Uh, and for clinicians, we don't usually begin to diagnose this until symptoms last for four weeks or more. I don't want to turn any of you into diagnosticians. I'm offering you this as one way of understanding stuff that you may see with some of the folks you encounter in the course of your research. Um, and you may well think about the social, political, personal consequences of this for folks. Shame, isolation, disempowerment, rage. Think about how these play into the kinds of social and historical issues that affect democracy. Okay. I could, there's a lot I could talk about. I'm just going to power quickly through this. Uh, then we have a conversation. I do think uh, that there are some very specific challenges and trauma facing research. First of all, for those of you who are doing any interviews or even encounters with documents of primary sources, recognizing that you have to overcome enormous amounts of stigma and silence, as well as active censorship by vested interests, is central. Ethics. Individuals and communities that have experienced trauma have already been betrayed once. And so how we relate to them a little bit more about this. Um, how we relate to them can have a big impact. Uh, verification uh, for documents relating and claims, the trauma claims, is a very interesting area. If people want to talk about it, I can. Um, <coughs> a lot about images and uh, uh, trauma-informed research agenda. Okay. I want to say something now. And again, you can bookmark anything that you want to talk about. I want to move a little bit into the impact on the researchers, which is the primary motivation for this. Um, there's a lot of evidence that uh, in journalists and human rights workers and in others <coughs> that high rates of exposure to direct trauma or <coughs> secondary trauma in the form of a steady diet of higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychological injuries. That's something to note. If your work leads you into this dark place, into this dark area of human experience, there's some risk of psychological consequence for you. And you want to be armed against that. It's also important to note that among the many risk factors for Trauma, such as our own lives and in our own families, 
is high on the list. If you have had experiences, especially with exposure in childhood to violence, other adverse experiences, experiences of torture or assault, things that are in our lives and in our families, those may increase your risk of having some kind of a response to this material. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do that work, but it does mean you want to be aware of and you want to think about the impact on yourself. So direct exposure to traumatic events is one source of trauma stress. In particular, events where you feel shoehorned. So empathetic engagement with folks, vicarious exposure to a steady diet of toxic images. This is a very interesting area. It turns out, starting about 20 years ago, clinicians who treated trauma victims, but who had never been traumatized themselves, began noticing that they were having all of the symptoms of PTSD. And in fact, it turns out that there is this thing called vicarious traumatization, which is simply a different pathway to the same responses. And the latest updated definition of post-traumatic stress disorder in the diagnostic manual specifically includes this steady professional exposure to traumatic imagery or to trauma-based material. This is not a consequence of casual viewing of upsetting events on the news or casual viewing of horror movies or something like that. But for those of us who are in the profession, that involves a deep immersion into forensic information, into human rights, war crimes, the aftermath of disaster, the details of sexual assault, all of this sort of stuff, which many of you are looking at. That can be a pathway to traumatic stress reaction. One of the nice, I'm going to talk bluntly about the impact on you as researchers. One of the nice things about trauma is that it's kind of easy to know when this is getting to you, if you're honest with yourself. Because if you think about all of those characteristic responses I described earlier to the biological part of it, the intrusive memory, the arousal, the withdrawal and numbing, they show up in our lives and in our work in really pretty direct ways. People begin to blow deadlines or change in their performance at school or at work. This is a slide from the newsroom, so we can give some of this newsroom. But if you find yourself getting not just grumpy, but chronically irritable, withdrawing from your colleagues, withdrawing from social engagement with your family, any of those things, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, those are signs that something's going on. And in a more extreme form, when people don't pay attention to those things, you can get trapped into kind of a spin cycle of self-medication to help sleep. You see this common, you can get into a spin cycle of constantly avoiding your work and then the deadlines and then getting into trouble with your professors because your stuff isn't in, whatever it is. Burnout, extreme depression, etc. The consequences can be quite 
severe when these things aren't attended to, right? Now, the good news is that we are actually pretty resilient, um, both as human beings and specifically as researchers. The job, the mission that you each outlined in your presentation at the last time, um, actually is protected. There's a lot of kind of good science showing that having a clear sense of purpose, doing a craft, doing the job well, is protected in the face of trauma. In addition, there are a few other things that you can do. So what works? Self-care works. Uh, I love that. I love that slide. It's just a fire exit over here. If you're going to be plunging yourselves into the kind of research project you were describing last night, you need a self-care plan. I'm going to be very blunt about this. You really do. The risk of being thrown off by the nature of this work is quite consequential. You don't want your career derailed. You don't want your intimate life derailed. Right? So you need a self-care plan. The good news on that is that it's pretty basic. It turns out that things like getting enough sleep, uh, eating right, um, and a particularly exercise are very helpful in lowering arousal, in helping us metabolize a lot of traumatic information. Okay. Uh, also, for those of you who are so inclined, things like meditation and yoga have a very, very uh, deep connection to resilience. They are very good, again, at lowering arousal and also at gaining protection on day-to-day -day encounters with the darker side of human life or events or information we can only experience uh, or understanding only experience. Keeping a work journal is actually a really good idea because as you spend months or even years engaged in these spaces, you need protectors every day and you want to contain and analyze for yourself the meaning of these of this information and these events. And there's a lot of good evidence that simply structuring it through the form of a work journal is really important. Uh, so a self-care plan. Central to self-care is also social support. The single most important predictor of resilience in the face of trauma exposure is not therapy or drugs or anything. It is social
you know, 12, 15 hours a day and just kind of gumped everything at it until I was done. This is actually incredibly stupid. Um, and particularly now that we're dealing with lots of graphic imagery that's available online and all this, you want to pace your commonly. You want to pace it for breaks. You want it to have days when you don't do that kind of work. You want to think about a structure that works for you. Um, we also know a little bit about what doesn't work. This is my favorite slide of the whole thing. Uh, my doctor said only one glass of alcohol a day. I agree with that. Um, so I am not a, as, as I think Jay says, I am not a cure in these matters. I am perfectly capable of um, responsible self-medication. But um, actually, and I actually I say this um, very directly because for people who do a lot of trauma research, it's, it's, it's a significant issue. There is a temptation if you're finding yourself not able to sleep so well, or finding the work distressing, or finding your deadlines being blown, or finding the stress getting to you, to solve it um, with alcohol. Um, because it can help you forget for a little while, or it can help you get to sleep. This is stupid. This is a bad idea. The reason it's a bad idea is that alcohol interferes with memory consolidation. And
is by keeping the promises of that structure in mind. It's really important. Um, okay. I could say a lot more, uh, but I think I should probably stop because we don't have that much time, and I want to make sure we have a, a conversation about all of this. Any, I don't know, questions, arguments?